Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. As award season continues to pick up through the fall, make sure you're subscribed to the Big Picture Podcast with Sean Fennessy. He and Amanda Dobbins will cover everything you need to know about this fall's Oscar contenders, and Sean will be interviewing the industry's premier directors leading up to the awards. You can listen to his conversations with Bong Joon-ho, Noah Baumbach, Antonio Banderas, and more on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. How's it going, everybody? I can hear you. Speak up. I can hear you. <laughs> it's good to be back. Been away for a little bit, but um, I have a really fun interview today with uh, Mr. Edward Norton, actor extraordinaire. Man, he's been in... You know what the thing is? I don't know if he's been in a lot of, lot of movies, but he's great in every movie that he's been. Because I was thinking about it. I feel like he did a lot of movies and then he kind of slowed off a little bit, but he kind of does his own thing. And Edward Norton is great. He's in a movie called uh, Motherless Brooklyn. And we talk about acting, his career. We even get into uh, some funny uh, banter about doing voices and stuff. Uh, It's really fun. I taped it a little bit ago, but I think you guys will enjoy it. But it's good to be back, man. I've been real busy. I traveled a little bit um, the last couple of weeks. I was actually in Jordan. Can you believe it? I was in the Middle East, you guys. That's right. I was doing a writer's lab for the um, Royal Film Commission of Jordan in conjunction with the Writers Guild Foundation here in the States. And, you know, I kind of like to mentor writers and that kind of stuff, something that I do. I got a lot of teachers in my family, so I can't help doing that kind of stuff. (laughs) But going to the Middle East and experiencing, uh, you know, being right in the middle of things uh, was very, very interesting. And working with some very uh, conscientious writers was very cool. It's exciting to hear uh, and work with, you know, some young voices. And by young, I mean people who are really kind of kind of finding themselves, like what kind of writer they are and that kind of stuff, and helping them to kind of shape that was really a lot of fun. So I want to say thank you to all the great people in Jordan who were really nice. I just really had a uh, – I almost didn't go because I've just been so busy, but I was able to, as I say, sneak it in. <laughs> Sneaked in a trip to the Middle East. You know, and just to be in just a completely different part of the world. I don't think, and I was thinking, I don't think I've been to the Middle East. The The closest I've been has been Turkey. I went on a family trip a little while ago. And uh, it's so, you know, when you think about that region of the world, it feels so dangerous from the outside. But Jordan felt pretty safe, actually, to be honest with you. But in so much of Western culture is kind of sprinkled in there, you know, and there's its own culture as well. So... I haven't posted any pictures and stuff yet, but I'll be doing that probably this weekend. Just haven't had a chance to. But anyhow, want to give a shout out to Jordan. And here's the other thing. Many of the writers, and this was men and women too, really wanted to tell stories about the treatment of women in the Middle East. And I found that very inspiring. Because as we know, the you know, a lot of the cultural treatment of women is still pretty cavemanish, let's just say, <laughs> you know, I mean, by cavemanish, I mean, you know, and this is not an insult to that arena because I think a lot of people feel that way, but I think it's like, what are we going to do about it? This is where we are right now. And how do you really change it? Cause it's something that can't, the way that the systems are built there primarily, I think through religion and the kind of authoritarian governments change doesn't happen quite as 
quickly as I think people would like it to happen. But what's interesting is because artists want to talk about these things, and a lot of it has to do with just basic liberation of women and to get out of the hands of some basic type of laws that aren't protecting women, where women can be mistreated in a number of ways by family members and kind of be protected by the law. That's some shit that's probably going to change, but it's going to take a while. But it's a, it's interesting that both men and both male and female writers want to write about this and want to have different perspectives on, in this area. I, f- I found that very inspiring, actually. So there you go. Sometimes change happens with the pen. <sighs> happens with the pen first. Oh, or I know, or the iPad, whatever. <laughs> I know. So that was fun. And I'll catch up in some of my business stuff, too. We've uh, been announcing some new things. So, you know, I'm, my uh, company called Wilmore Films, we're at Universal Studios right now developing projects. This is kind of the other side of me that some of you guys know. Some some of you guys just know me from performing and that stuff. And that's cool. But, you know, I've been a writer-producer behind the scenes for a long time. A lot of you know that. And it's one of my passions. I really love doing it, developing projects and that kind of stuff. And I'm working with a, a lot of really cool people right now. It's really a lot of fun. We just announced one project with um, Kerry Washington's company called, uh, the title right now is called Reasonable Doubt. And uh, Ramallah Muhammad, she was a writer for Scandal, very talented, is writing the project. And we're so excited about that. Man, I'm, I got to tell you, the chance to team up with Kerry Washington, she's so smart, uh, such a sensitive artist. And by the way, she has uh, the film version of her play, the play that she was in, American Son, I think is streaming on Netflix right now. You guys got to catch it. She's amazing in that. It's such a powerful performance. I saw it on Broadway. And whew, that's the kind of stuff that's exciting to see on Broadway. The material that's just really just electric like that. And uh, performances, by the way, by the whole cast and the director, Kenny Leon, who's fantastic. Really good stuff. And then the other project, this is one of the funnest projects I've done in a long time, guys. And I'm working with British comedian, Uh, London Hughes, who is so funny and is just like this burst of uh, energy and fresh air and and everything. And uh, we're doing that at NBC for NBC Network. We're writing the pilot right now, writing it together. And both of these shows have a chance, hopefully, to get on the air next year. So hopefully you guys will be pulling for us out there. But uh, I just wanted to let you know what was going on because these projects are so much fun. It's one of the things that that I enjoy in what I do. And it's part of the reason why sometimes I'm away from here and don't get a chance to catch up with you. But I'm back now. We got some good stuff coming up. Some of the stuff that I enjoy. Man, I've kind of been out of so I haven't been following this impeachment hearings and all that stuff. And I know that just started. But it, I can just give you, you guys know my general opinion on this. Like, the impeachment um, issue itself, I'm like, whatever. You know, I mean, that's to me... That's the least of the shit that Trump has done is that phone call with Ukraine. I mean, God bless the Democrats for wanting to impeach him on that. I'm not sure if that'll stand up in the Senate. It probably won't. But look, I wish he could just be impeached just for being fucking unfit, just for being unfit. I wish that was enough. And I wish all we could do is say, just look at him. Just watch him every day. Like that was the evidence. Just watch him every day. Evidence. Just show any clip. Show the tweets. Evidence. Like, we don't even need this phone call. Just just show. Just look at the, what he said about war hero John McCain. All these things. The way he treats his own staff. I have never seen a president. I have never, ever, ever seen a situation 
were members of the president's own staff. We're not talking about the opposition. We're not talking about his critics. Members of his own staff were so afraid, you know, he was going to run the country into the ground immediately. They were all bending over backwards to try to make sure that didn't happen, whispering behind his back, all these things. And people who are these very esteemed people in these high positions, this is crazy, guys. He does not belong in office. So whether this Ukraine thing is the thing that's going to do it, we're a year away from an election. I think that's probably the way to do it. Just vote him out because this is going to take a while anyway. It's all going to line up at the same time. I'm very concerned, though, that the impeachment hearings could help him in some ways, but I don't know about that yet. I still think part of me feels like with this kind of economy and low unemployment, hard to unseat a sitting president, but we'll see. We'll see. You never know. So um, I'll comment more specifically on the impeachment uh, probably in the next uh, episode. So that's about it, guys. Other than that, you know, my Lakers doing good. I saw Colin Kaepernick is getting a tryout with the NFL. By the time you hear this, he may have already done it. So maybe Jay-Z was doing some Yoda magic behind the scenes. I don't know. But we'll see. That would be interesting, though. All the people that were slamming Jay-Z for doing this deal with the NFL, if he was behind this, It'll be interesting to have that conversation and, and see what's going on. But um, that's about it. Did I miss anything? I don't think so. Enjoy the conversation with Edward Norton. And um, we've got some really exciting guests coming up before the end of the year. And uh, I'll speak to you soon. All right, welcome back. Really special guest today, guys. This is kind of a treat. We don't get like Hollywood legends coming in on Black on the Air, you know. Legends in the making. Legends, how, legends. How about just in the making. I don't know if I'm there yet. I don't know. Sometimes the legends are as they're doing it. You know, if you look yeah. like in sports, but he's I, already talking, so you can already hear. Of course, I want to be a young man. I want to yeah, be mid-career. Yes, uh, it's okay. You can be young and still be a legend. Pr- Primal Fear, of course. Fight Club. Birdman, my favorite, Grand Budapest Hotel, by the way, which I'm going to ask you about. But he is doing it all in this movie, Motherless Brooklyn. You guys have to see it. He's directing, writing it, everything, acting and starring in it. Edward Norton, thanks for coming to Black on the Air, Edward. Total pleasure, man. How I'm, you a, do- I'm a longtime fan. Oh, thanks, man. Back at you. And you must be completely exhausted at this point. Or are you energized because of all of it? You know what? The um, When you become a, a cog in the machinery of of something you're putting out yeah you have to remember like i did this to myself yes i yes. and also um i tried to make it about things that i'm interested in enough right. that and also i that i can keep talking about them and also um the time i know that a thing has done what i want it to do is when when people are absorbing mm-hmm. different things out of it based on who they are right you know if if mm-hmm. um like you mentioned Fight Club, we still get like doctoral theses, yeah. you know, from from seminary students. You right. know what I mean? You you get you get interpretations mm-hmm. of that film on theological basis, mm-hmm. philosophical basis, sociopolitical, you know, you see it go through the prism of what another person's view of the world is. Right. And if there's enough in a thing, and not just enough in it, but enough room in it mm-hmm. for people to find themselves 
or find an, an argument or find a th- then then something very interesting is happening because because it's activating people right yeah it's not it's not you who haven't handed them a Xanax <laughs> which right. sometimes we need Absolutely. I'm not saying we don't I'm not saying yeah. we don't need to um to chill Have lean back and punch out and get taken yeah. away but I but I know that the things that activated me are the things that stayed with me that I watched many times yeah. and when you go for one of those interesting conversations can definitely emerge, you know? I agree. You know, when I call it when you make a contribution, you know, and by contribution, you're, you're requiring participation from your audience, <laughs> you know, like, and in this, you really take on a lot because there's racial issues in here, you know, of course, uh, the character that you choose is fascinating. And, you know, I have, I didn't read all of Jonathan Latham's book that's based on, but, but just from what I've read, I mean, I give him so much credit for going into a character like that. Um, my son has Asperger's, which is completely in a different realm of this, but yeah. it's, but it's part of this whole continuum of being what we call different and yes. your, your brain working differently. Yeah, and the way he gets inside of that in the novel is fascinating. Was is that what captivated you in the beginning? Absolutely. Yeah. No, 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 the many the the wider lens that we ended up applying to this the 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 more expansive um sort of narrative into mm-hmm. into big american themes mm-hmm. that all came later that okay, yeah it's the, be- a, the beginning I, was the beginning was honestly it's, it'll sound like a funny comparison but my initial response to the book and the character reminded me of the way i felt the first time i read catcher in the rye mm. That you know, mm-hmm. why do people love Holden Caulfield so yeah. much? It's because on page one, he introduces you to himself. Yeah, and he's funny. He's sensitive. He's all these things. Then you're watching him trip himself up. Right. This character Lionel uh, in Motherless Brooklyn, who has Tourette syndrome and obsessive compulsive disorder, he he lets you in page one. He's telling you. My head is not is a yeah. very strange place to be. It, this is how it works, and and by the end of the first page, you're laughing, you're Absolutely. wincing, you're yeah. you're in you're inside an empathy with him, right? Yeah. And once you once you have empathy, once you're amused and touched and fascinated, you're like wherever this guy is going, I'm 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 in. You yeah. know what I mean? And that and that's a that's a pretty phenomenal trick it's like we Absolutely. all work all these things we do honestly i think like comedy music films literature everybody's trying to do the same thing which is create a hook not in a cheap way but mm-hmm. grab grab your attention and grab your buy-in and then take you somewhere right yeah and what's interesting because you know you you talked about in some of your interviews that you've been working on this for so long and when I would guess when you're working on a project so long, like you don't want to lose what's contemporary about the reason why you're doing this, of course, mm-hmm. you know. And by starting with character, I think you keep that that sense, and it's it's almost even more relevant now. <laughs> yeah, know? no. The, and to yeah. be clear, the book has nothing to do with the this big dark history of. I'm of talking about New his York. character. Yeah, yeah. I'm not even talking about no, that yet. But but the right. character I wanted to to me. The first thing I said was, well, I'm not sure what this is in totality as a movie. Right. I think it's a very it, it's a book that you spend time inside his mind and obviously it it obviously needed to break out and become something more to be cinematic, mm-hmm. right? To be a visual medium, to be a musical medium, to right. be all, it needed 
but that was a mystery in the beginning. What I thought is what you want to what you want to transpose from the page to the screen is the core, which is the affinity with him, the fascination with him, mm-hmm. the sympathy, the empathy with him, and um, and the great thing was for me the detective, like when you're in sort of the the, the tradition of the detective story. The detective talking to you is kind of part of that tradition. Sure. But with him, it's fun because it kind of flips it on its yeah. head. He's not Bogart. He's not Nicholson. Right. He's not super cool and telling you the, look here, I'm going to tell you a story, see? And it's going to, yes. and, and you're going to realize I'm the guy who knows the angles. I, right. you know, blah, blah. It's the opposite. It's a guy telling you from square one, I have something wrong with me. Yes. Like, and I am, it is hard for me to move in the world. Yeah. You know, and it's and you 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 kind of go, "Whoa, that's not what I'm used to in in these kind of stories." Yeah, it's more like a combination of Marlowe, Giddies and Monk almost. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, yeah. You're going to put I, those I, three together. Yeah. Well, you know, and what's funny is what's funny is the skin of this or more than the skin the the milieu, the the place we go. Mm-hmm. Clearly it has the ambition as a film to go where like LA Confidential or mm-hmm. where you go through the portal and you go whoa, this is not small. This is not a diorama or people playing dress up. Right. This looks right. It's big. The actors are good. And I feel like I have gone through and into mm-hmm. another time and place in, a, in that magical True. way, big. But, but honestly, as much to me, I, I, love, I do love movies like Forrest Gump and Rain Man and... Mm-hmm. Um, a beautiful mind, you know, f- films where you're, you're the hook is an underdog. You know what I mean? An sure. underdog that you're pulling for. To and and in, and I think when, I, since there was a part of what Dominic I Dominique and Eugene, you remember what's that? that? Dominique and oh yeah, Eugene, yeah absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you audiences feel. Unconsciously, I think it reminds them of the type of people they want to be. Mm-hmm. When you when you get them to pull for There's an underdog, yeah. it, they remember. They remember. You know what? I do want to be a person who's roots for the guy that everyone else is. I don't want to be on right. the side of the bullies. You know what I mean? Right. And since there was a larger thing that I wanted to work toward of what powerful people. Why do we? Why do? We, why do we apply this romance to the pow- to power mm-hmm. over people taking care of each other? I liked the idea of not just this character, but creating a kind of a tableau of of people who, you know, of like the idea of that it's horrible when when people, when no one is looking, when we're not looking out for each other. Right. When we're not like looking out for each other, looking out for our own, our cities, our, you know, that, that, sure. that damage gets done when we don't, you know, pay attention. And, uh, and, um, and those things, you know, th- it all becomes a weave that you're going for, but it def- there's no question it begins with character. Yeah. It has to. It has to. Well, let's talk about them a little bit just to give people a little more context. Um, the story, Motherless Brooklyn, um, well, the basic story in the book, you're, it's focused on, can we call him a, a detective, maybe? Well, he's, <laughs> he's he, not quite a detective. He's a— he works he's, for a detective That's agency. right. He—, yeah. he that's one of the things I like about it is the, de- the detective is Bruce Willis. <laughs> yes, I'm right? not sure exactly what his um, job is. He's like the, one the of the private the eye, minions. the gumshoe, yes, the thing. Exactly. He's an operative. 
Yes, he's an, an operative. operative. There you go. There he's you go. There a, you go. He's a, as he says, um, uh, I'm an associate investigator. Yes, right? associate investigator. Yeah, he, he, yes. he has a place in the world uh, with the one person who, since his childhood, has kind of seen his value and his specialness yeah. within this very chaotic condition of Tourette's. Um, and has given him a place in the world working at this detective agency yeah. um, in Brooklyn. And he has Tourette's syndrome. Yeah. And um, what is it? Uh, let's talk. Can we talk about Tourette's for a little yeah, yeah. bit? Because mm-hmm. I'm sure you must have, this sounds weird, but gone down the Tourette's rabbit hole when you're first thinking about this. Because there's a lot of information that's just basic that you probably need just to yeah, start and I was, to work I, with the characters. I, I was interested in it before mm-hmm. I read that book. I had seen a, um, mm-hmm. there's a documentary hilariously titled Twitch and Shout, <laughs> um, which is That's great. Awesome. And uh, mm-hmm. there's one, There's one. Um, it's on HBO. It's called, uh, it's about children with Tourette's syndrome. Mm-hmm. Called, and it's called, I don't, I have Tourette's, but Tourette's doesn't have me. Mm. It's very touching, very funny. Um, and one of the things you, you know, pe- one, one of the strangest things about Tourette's syndrome to me is how in it, it expresses itself very individualistically, mm-hmm. no no two people do exactly the same, have exactly the same symptoms. Mm-hmm. Like they, th- there are categories. You know, some people have physical twitches, some people have vocal tics. Like they obsess on one word and they inject it into their speech mm-hmm. all the time. Some people have the impulse that I think is called echolalia to shout inappropriate things, the lack of inhibition right. and the impulse to— Profanity. Which is, in a way, the cliché of that's Tourette's, cliche right? Of it, that's right. that. That's the cliché. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and um, the the um, and some have a layer of obsessive-compulsive mm-hmm. kind of behavior, but in no two people are these, you know, do these manifest— I, I, know, a, I know a guy, f- friends with someone for years, who's he's a litigator in New York. He has Tourette's, and no one knows it because mm. he— in the film, you see almost from the beginning, you see that one of my sort of things is I'm stretching my neck and mm-hmm. stretching my jaw kind of compulsively. Mm. And he, he does that. He has no vocal component, no word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think people think he's like got a chronic crink in his neck. You yeah. know what I mean? Some people blink. Like you've probably seen people who can't stop compulsively blinking. Yeah. And that can be like a very mild form of Tourette yeah. syndrome. And then other people, Robin Williams introduced me to this friend of his who was a sculptor, who was twitching so severely that it looked like he was doing that Brazilian dance capoeira. Mm -hmm. I'm not even kidding. He was such such unbelievable pirouettes of savage jerking and body contortion and um, that it it looked kind of like that scene in the film where Lionel's in his bedroom and can't stop jerking so hard that you think he's going to break his own neck. He's like overwhelmed in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, um, and this guy, uh, Robin's friend, all shouted, um, mm-hmm. whooped, uh, um, tapped, you know, uh, yeah. uh, in, ryth- in, in compulsive rhythms. It was very, very extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and you see, you see all dimensions in between. And what I what I found fascinating was the idea that that these things are very individual, but also they can mash up in different ways. And, mm-hmm. and um, it gave me kind of a freedom to make my own blend, yeah, um, which I did. And, uh, and I took, but everything's from something really specific. The, mm-hmm. He has a tendency, um, 
this character, he has a tendency when he feels connected to someone to rhythmically tap their yes, shoulder, right? I noticed that. Um, once, twice, and then three times. It's kind of an endearing thing. Exactly. And, and you and, kind of apologize for it, too. Yeah. Right. And, and, but, he, but with people that he loves, like yes. Frank, he yeah, does it. And, yeah. and Frank loves it, too, right? right it's almost right, like right. a hug. And then Bobby Cannavale teases him yeah, affectionately yeah. with it later. And But then other people, he's he's... You know, he meets a girl he likes, yeah. and before she really knows what's going on, he's tapping her on the yes, shoulder, and it's yes. a little awkward, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, but that's straight. I yeah. saw, I saw an. Interview, you remember the NBA player Chris Jackson? Absolutely. He had Tourette syndrome, and yeah. he 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 tapped people on the shoulder, and I right. love that. I I think Calvin Pete did the uh, golfer had who, Tourette's. I believe. I don't so. remember that. Yeah. But I in the interviews mm-hmm. in one of the documentaries, Chris Jackson talks about um, another thing I borrowed from him was that he talks about how he he couldn't stop doing something until it sounded right 10 times in a mm-hmm. row. And one of the reasons he was such a good free throw shooter mm-hmm. was that he couldn't leave the practice line until he hit like yeah. 10 in a row where the net, the, the swish of the net sounded right. So funny because I can relate to a lot of things. Me too, like, me too. You know, and I think there's something compulsive when you're in our business in some ways. I certainly know writers who are on the edge of the spectrum or that type of thing, the way our brains work. I had a stuttering problem when I was a kid, but my stuttering problem came because my friend was a stutter and I'm a natural mimic. Mimic. I, and I couldn't stop it through mimicry, but then it became my Your thing. own thing. And That's I can amazing. relate to this character because I would have to manage myself when I knew things. Were, there are starts of sentences that were very difficult for me. Wow. And I'd have to maybe yawn to start it <laughs> or that type of thing. So I, I would fake a yawn. So I wouldn't stutter. You had mechanisms. Because I'd be going, uh, and I couldn't right. get the word out. you know. And that happened for years, and I had mechanisms. And the way that he manages himself, telling us about Bailey, like right. this name that he uses. and His head calling or him. Or looking like a sneeze. A sneeze, yeah. On a twitch like that. Yeah. You know? Were most of these things your observance of it? How much of it, did you invent any of it yourself? Yeah. That type um, of thing? In the film, his compulsive word is if. He yells if a lot. Which mm-hmm. I, I liked. I liked because, honestly, to me, it has a little bit of a literary, it almost has an existential yeah. quality to it. It's like Willem Dafoe ends up saying, yeah, if, that's yeah, that's yeah. that's the rub of life. If only, if only, yeah. right? And, and I, Willem I, Dafoe, just when you say that. I and mean, we'll talk about the cast later. But, but he, um, <laughs> so I, I, I liked that. I, I chose that as his word. I, I um. Some is straight out of the book. Bailey, the the idea that his head, that his own yeah. condition refers to him yes. as Bailey, so that sometimes when he's screaming, yes. like "Eat me, Bailey," yes. or he's yes. going like "Ass dog, Bailey," yes. it's it's not. It's his head commenting on his failure, on his own failure. He's in a conversation with yeah. himself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that idea that the that's straight out of the book. That's yeah. that's that's right in the book. Yeah, um, in I the think first chapter. In the first chapter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he um and I loved that. I loved the idea. That, as he says later, it's like a piece of my head took a life of its own and then started, kept joyriding me. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like he's living with an anarchist in his head, you know. And, yeah. and um, There was an interesting thing in the movie, too. I don't know if this is in the book, but where he's trying to explain to to the person that I would like to only be thinking of this. But yes. really— I'm probably thinking of like the bills in my wallet right now, right. hoping they're in the right order. Well, that is me. I, I okay, because that was I very relate to that. Too. That's yes. very specific. Yeah. Me, I don't. You know, sometimes I think a lot of people say, "Oh, I have OCD," because it's become 
what honestly, I think a lot of people say he's on the spectrum in a very glib way now. Yeah, yeah. I, I think like it's a, a heroin chic. Yeah, it's a, it is. No, it is. It, 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 I think we right. have to acknowledge that there's there's a certain Completely. kind of a chic to that now, and and mm. sometimes I think that's you have to be a little careful because obviously there are people who suffer or Completely. or deal or deal with real you know crippling versions of OCD and and. People saying it in a chic way to say that they're neurotic <laughs> is, yeah, it's not, the is, is not the same thing. Yeah. But I do, I do, I have always related to. I've I've al- I've always had a little bit of a hard time leaving a room mm. in disarray. Mm-hmm. I, I I I do much better if when I glance back, things are. It's like the Radiohead song, "Everything in Its Right Place." Mm-hmm. I I relate to that. I I do think about if. I, I keep my money in my wallet mm-hmm. stacked by denomination, and when it's not, I'm aware of it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't hurt me, but it's but it's a function of the brain. I, mm. I a, a little compulsive. Like I, I've I've sometimes joked that I'm like the only husband in America who gets yelled at for doing the dishes too much, <laughs> like because I because I like I like doing the dishes. You know That's what I mean? Hilarious. And I right? don't really like other people doing it because um, see, I now I, we know where I, the yeah, problem is. I find yeah. I've it's like did you it's do like, the dishes? Yeah, it, <laughs> like like. But what you said you said something that really I, I since I was a kid I have had a very difficult time controlling the impulse to mimic the vocal pattern of yeah. the person that I'm talking to. It's, I do it all the time. And I yeah. and I I used my mother used to be like, "Hey, honey, you can't do that." Like you yeah. should, like, you know, I'd be like meeting the Japanese family mm-hmm. across the street and I to me it was an affinity. It it always was an impulse to merge myself. You're like Zelig. Yeah, with with a per, with someone and I think I, I wonder if you relate to this. I think comedians mm-hmm. and people who do impersonations, mm-hmm. actors who are good at that, at right. accents. I think it's like that Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hours thing. If when you obsess on it, when yeah. you really in your brain are listening to the sound mm-hmm. of speech and trying to mimic it, you spend. In my youth, I spent an enormous amount of brain time. Trying to figure out what's the shape of the mouth, you Me too. you you know what it is. Yeah. It, you can't explain it, but when you hear a certain type Completely. of a sound, you know what to do Absolutely. with the shape of your mouth to create that sound. Completely, I relate to this completely. I did impressions growing up yeah. and all that. I was telling a friend of mine, I said, "Yeah, I do the four Beatles, and when I do them, they <laughs> they exist in a different part of my mouth." <laughs> and it's really weird. Like, you know, if you're doing John Lennon, he's kind of in the nose there. And he comes know. up. Yeah, and he's he's up there. Yeah. You know, but if it's Paul, he's at the top of the mouth. <laughs> yeah, but if it's Ringo, he's yeah. down there in the back of the throat. But if it's George, George is, George is, is in the mouth. And, he's yeah, kind of in the mouth. But, yeah, and, and George is more in the back of the throat. <laughs> yes, he's both there. Yeah. You know? I know it's really funny. It's it's um. But I I can feel you know what's really it funny. I, it's funny you say it because really recently yeah. I was having a conversation with someone, and I started I started one of Matthew McConaughey's Lincoln ads came up. Literally, we're standing there. I love the yeah, and I and I and I started compulsively not mocking. I could I wasn't <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't I I so I you know I started to talk you know do, do the thing where but yeah. the whistle. It's the whistle that he and he has, and I started saying, "Oh, you know, it's the same as Ian McKellen." Yeah. And someone went, "Wait, did you just say that Matthew McConaughey and Ian McKellen sound the same?" And I said, "I'm telling you, in my files, in my head, yeah. immediately I know Matthew McConaughey, 
and Ian McKellen do one thing it, that's very similar, which is, you know, when Ian McKellen talks, he has that whistle in his voice. It comes yeah. through like this. You know, he has this, this tiny sort of whistle yeah. that comes through. And so does Matt McConaughey. He, yeah. he has a that thing where the tongue and the teeth come together and yeah. this little whistle comes through it. And it's really distinctive. Yes. You know? It's kind of like when Sean Connery has the SH. <laughs> yeah. You know, he can't— Your boss, Conch. Yes. He can't stop doing that. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. Who yeah. was it? Who did it on SNL? Yeah. No, <laughs> it who, was, did, uh, who did? Who did? Ha- no, Daryl Hammond was— was it Will Sean Con- Daryl was uh, uh, Will was um, Alex Trebek. Yeah, yeah, he was yeah, Alex Trebek. D- Daryl right, Hammond right, right, was right, right. Daryl Hammond was. Um, I'll take Ingle yeah. Bum cover. <laughs> <laughs> That's an album cover. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. uh, the but I think that um, I think that the compulsion to not only mimic but also to get the rhythm of words yeah. right, comedian. Mm-hmm. You know, I talked to Chappelle about this a little bit one time. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, when Dave is on, like, and I, he's always on, mm-hmm. but, like, the Radio City shows mm-hmm. that he did, um, the first run of Radio City, City that, shows, yeah. he did, when he was in the suit, mm-hmm. not even the second one, when he went— he did a first run when he first started coming back. He did, like, 10 nights at Radio oh, right. City. I remember you He was about. in a three-piece yeah, yeah, suit yeah. with the stool and the cigarette. Mm-hmm. And— those shows were so crafted. Mm-hmm. The language, the, the 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 rhythm of his language mm-hmm. was so crafted. I started I started going crazy. I was like, yeah. he has he has. This is so written. This is so completely sculpted. Absolutely, the the, the surrealism in mm-hmm. his language. And I knew I knew that I could he, you fi- I know he fixated on the sound Completely. of the way the sounds of sentences went together and and I can get I in the film Michael K Williams you know the great he plays this trumpet player yeah. who resembles Miles Davis he's mm-hmm. he's never named and Michael he expresses to me what the way I feel about someone like Lionel I feel lucky that I'm not I feel lucky that I have something to put it all through. Mm-hmm. I, I feel you you know like we where you have that we've thing, been we've we found reference. a yeah we, well, we found a place to put this weird compulsion. Yes. You know what I mean? And I I'm I feel I I think sometimes like if I was in a straight world job I would be the guy who's muttering to himself mm-hmm. you know I don't I don't know what I would do with it I know what you mean people, um, people say Larry how'd you get into comedy I said I'll be honest with you I'm in showbiz to get comedy out of me he said because yeah. the comedy's gonna come out if I was in a bank the comedy's still coming out I will not get rewarded for it over there though. People, <laughs> so I, I didn't I, get into it no I, and this I, is here and I'm able to get it out of me yes. when we did Fight Club I um people were like doesn't Fincher make you crazy with the like 35 40 takes i was like i've never been happier like mm-hmm. never been happier like i can do this shit all day mm-hmm. i can it's like the old sanford meisner exercises mm-hmm. about repeating a sentence Absolutely. to find every I variation of the way actually. you say it? Yeah. yeah and and it's there's something very theoretic mm-hmm. completely or, or ocd about Absolutely. meisner exercises it's like you're saying you know it, it's like well, I gotta walk out the door. It's like, well, I gotta, I gotta walk out the door. Yeah. I gotta, no, I don't. I gotta walk out the door. Yes. You know, you can say a thing. There are so many variations on a thing, and when you're with someone like Fincher, 
he's he not even going to get the camera move right for 20 takes. Yeah. So you're in this zone of like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to mess around for a while mm-hmm. until I sense he's getting anywhere near what he wants out of it technically. Mm-hmm. And then we can start to dial in like which one's right, but let's just play. You know, my brain, That's amazing, yeah. my brain goes, mm-hmm. it, it, my, the, to me, it's completely blissful. The, the kind of zen of you've almost playing. found a way to kind of have a kind of rehearsal while you're working, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or maybe not even rehearsal, but a feeling out and a stretching out, you know, and honing in type yeah. of thing as you're doing it. Right? The, the, the funny thing was, is like, you know, sometimes you say these numbers, people don't really know what it means. I would say the average film I've worked on, maybe it's like 50 days of shooting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Something like mm-hmm. that, 40, 50 days of shooting. Fight Club was a 130-day shoot. Mm-hmm. Like, it was a, it was a, it was a beast. And that's a lot of setups for a people. beast. Yeah, that you know, is a beast. Like, like 16, 1700 setups, but just massive, massive. Yeah, like you don't hear about shoots like that anymore. And so the time to do that kind of playing was, was vast. I, on this film, I had to make, you know, I made this fairly big New York period piece. We did it in only a 46 day shoot. That's crazy. Um, which not to get extra credit, but it, we, no, that's crazy. It, one of the reasons, one of the ways I could control my own as an actor, I can be problematic, uh, because with a, with someone with Tourette's and OCD, you can, you can get lost in a quest for perfection and there is no perfection. There's yeah. no end game. It's, it's, it's this thing. But because I was directing it, I could be fairly, as an actor, I could kind of go, well, I'm going to do one at two, I'm going to do one at six, and I'm going to do one, I'm going to redline it and just do it at 11. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give them all to myself, not worry about it, not worry about which one is right, because I can figure it out later. Okay. You know, I mean, if I'm cutting it, if I'm sculpting Using it. Using your different head later. Yeah, I can, right. I can, I can, I don't have to, as an actor, figure out, like, which one is the starred take. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I don't have to... I don't have to do 30. I can just do a variety and move on. You know what I mean? How tough is it to compartmentalize that? Because, you know, we're in this business for a long time. But anytime you're stepping a little bit out of your lane, that's where the doubt can come in, you know? Yeah. Or not even doubt so much as you want to – it's like with acting, you go – I got this, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not concerned about that. To a certain extent, you do. I'm. I know you have to do your due diligence with preparation. You, by the way, I thought one of the smartest things in this movie is the cast. You know, because that's got to calm you down as a director as well, right? A lot, yeah. You I know, mean, when you hire people who you know are crackerjack. I mean, Cherry Jones, for Christ's sake. Yeah, I mean, one of the all time, one of my favorites. Great. I saw her do the Eras on Broadway. Me it's too. still the best thing I've ever seen me on too. Broadway. One of the. Well, I mean, mm. never forgot it. Always was it, like. If I, I talk can about find it all the time. to People and, uh, bring it up as a performance. Yeah, that is. yeah. Which she won. She won the time. That, yeah. and that was like around probably when we were moving to New York. You know, yeah. that was like the early 90s, right? I mean... Yeah, I can't remember Yeah, something like that. Yeah, but something like that. But yeah. Um, yeah. I... But how hard is that? As, when you're in there directing, this is a passion project, of course. You want to... The Tourette's thing, of course you want to get that right. But you're telling a bigger story here, too. So were you... Any intimidation from the directing standpoint? Or are you just too much in it to even go there? My... my there's a couple things. One is, I think, when you've written something... There comes a point where you say, there's no reason for me to sit over someone else's shoulder nitpicking them on the details that are in my head. Mm-hmm. If, it's that, if it's in my head, then just execute on it. You know okay. what I mean? Um, I also feel that 
when you've done something for a while, and by that I mean tell stories on film, even if you've been an actor, and you've been lucky enough to work with Milos Forman and Woody Allen and Spike mm-hmm. Lee and David Fincher and Wes Anderson and Inyaridu and, right. you know, just great directors, mm-hmm. like great filmmakers, Many, some of whom are people who actually affected my desire to make films, you mm-hmm. know, like Milos or Spike um, or Woody Allen. And I, I um, you, absor- you know, you absorb a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of learning if you're paying attention. And at a certain point, like, I think about I think about you know uh, well starting with like do do the right thing was a si- was a seismic experience for me that was like I, seeing that film when I was nineteen that mm-hmm. like it changed my it changed my aspiration in terms of what I thought like movies were all about what what, what was it about it do you think that didn't well it was wildly entertaining mm-hmm. it was. It had the best music, you know. It was like it was like an explosion of. Mm-hmm. It was like it almost created Public Enemy. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like it was like that right. that opening title sequence of Rosie, power, yeah. Rosie dancing to that, and you were you were like, someone is doing this in a film. Like right off, you were like, what the hell is going yeah. on? And but then it was this guy. It was a blackboard you, jungle. Yeah, uh, the way it started to rock around the clock in the fifties. Yeah, and, but you've never moment. heard of him. Mm-hmm. You've never heard of him. He's writing, directing, producing, and acting in a movie about his own neighborhood that is wildly entertaining, the most original, like, stylistic thing you've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And it's just, like, ripping open a conversation that everybody's living in and nobody wants to have. That's a fact. And, And pushing the camera straight in on people as they yell like all their inner monologue about race and anger and all these right. things and yet at the end of it has this completely mature con- thing of saying I'm not I'm not giving you the answer on this I'm going to put a quote from Martin up I'm going to put a quote from Malcolm up mm-hmm. they're going to be diametrically opposed in their view of violence as a righteous response or not mm-hmm. to oppression and I'm going into your lap. What do you? What do we do about this? What do we do about it? Like because we have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you think about the number of films that are that bold in terms of what we talked about at the beginning, saying you must be an active participant in this. Right. I will entertain you. I will make you laugh. Yep. Sorry, your brain doesn't turn off. But, when you're but I am not <laughs> yes. going to be uncompassionate. I am going to be compassionate to mm-hmm. the racist pizza maker. I am going to. Mm-hmm. Show where Mookie may or may not be totally right. I'm gonna do. You're gonna not know what the hell. I'm not gonna let you reduce this. Mm-hmm. You're gonna have to deal with the complexity of a thing, and I'm leaving it in your lap. You know, it was like. I mean, I made it. You know, I made the 25th hour with him and Phil Hoffman and I mm-hmm. stood around. We were like, that movie was it. <laughs> yeah, that movie. You were like, you can do that. Yeah. Like. Like, if you can do that, like, everything else is BS. You know right. what I mean? It's like, like, and it was just like, when you look at people who take a big swing like that, mm-hmm. um, I talked to Warren Beatty, you know, Reds, I didn't, we were too young, but later I went back and, mm-hmm. you know, found Reds, and Reds was like, 
I was like, oh, my God, this guy made a three-hour and 15-minute movie about American socialists. Yeah, it's an under-talked-about movie, Oh, actually. my God, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. It's one of the, it's one of the greatest films in that decade about, about America, right? right? And, Absolutely. Because it's really about the idea that we had a moment of real idealism mm-hmm. about the idea of taking care of each other mm-hmm. before, before it, it went bad. You know, mm-hmm. before socialism sure. turned into something bad, it's like he said, we should look back at that because there was something beautiful in it. And maybe we've lost something. Maybe we threw the baby out with the bathwater and maybe we should have held on mm-hmm. to a little bit more about that. And he told me, Warren told me, like, he told me everybody said to him, you're going to flush every bit of collateral you've built in your whole career on this movie. Nobody wants to see this movie. Also, remember, it's. When he made that, it's like 20 years after the end of The Blacklist. Yeah. Not that long, no. really, in terms no. of time. But also, mm. also, not that many people have done that at that point. Orson Welles mm-hmm. does, did Citizen Kane and, and, like it, and never, you know, it and everybody hurt, it, got the knives out. And it they, ended his career. It ended his career, right? Yeah. And Warren knew him and knew that, mm-hmm. knew of that example of like, flying too close to the sun and getting crushed. Yeah. And people are telling him, no one wants to see this movie. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, I want to see it. You know, I, I want to see it. And he made it. And it's it's a masterpiece. Is, it's he, a, is he underrated as a producer? He's not talked about that much. Parallax View is one of my favorite movies yeah. that Warren produced. Um, it's a great one. Bonnie and Clyde, obviously. Bonnie and Clyde, he but produced it. People forget no, he people produced forget, and But yeah. also people forget Shampoo. actors yeah. coming out of the studio yeah. system – they didn't. They didn't do that. He was one of the very, yeah, very he first was an to get out and say, "I'm going to make these things myself." Yeah. Uh, whether he directed them or just produced them, and in a lot of ways, yeah, we take it for granted because, honestly, like Clint Eastwood doing Unforgiven, mm-hmm. Kevin Costner doing Dances with Wolves, you know, Ben Affleck making Argo, me making this, that that stacks up off of that example. Yeah. You know, the example of him and and I and I. You look at things like that and go, well, you know, Spike doing Do the Right Thing and all of his other ones, Warren. I was like, well, at a certain point, like, why not swing for it? It's, it's like you're not, you're not dodging bullets in Syria. It's, right. like, it's like, what what do you, you know, what are the real risks? Did entail? you know you wanted to direct this when you were first imagining it? Or did you first imagine it as a role for you that you wanted to uh, develop? Definitely. I was just like, I just want the gig. I, I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I you wanted want to play part. that character. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. It, it as it evolved, and I started to realize that maybe the character, the book is the book is a character portrait. It's not mm-hmm. really the plot isn't a de- isn't deep, and I don't mean that to say it's not compelling. But even Jonathan always said that the plot was an excuse, a framework for the character, character, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, but I, I said to him, what if, what if the character, because he's so good, what if? He needs a bigger canvas, you mm-hmm. know, on in a film. What if we springboard him into a bigger canvas that's actually about some some things that have a deeper resonance? And Jonathan mm-hmm. grew up in Brooklyn, and he was when I started talking about the history of, you know, what Robert Moses, he knew everything I was talking about. Sure. And I was like, what if we sent Lionel into that? And he was all over it. He was like, great. Oh, cool. So yeah. um, that that evolved, and I started sort of feeling like, well, you know, I like I like the uh, I like the idea of films that that sort of ch- that challenge the popular or the mainstream 
narrative of America, right? They mm-hmm. they sort of go, well, yeah, this is this is who we say we are, and this is the banner we march under, and we're proud of it, and we buy into it. But there's a shadow story that's going on, mm-hmm. and one of the great things about America, legitimately great, is we're allowed to look at the shadow story. Absolutely, you know what I mean. As cynical as we want to get about the way the game gets rigged or the people who are playing, who are antagonistic to the idea that people have power, blah, blah, blah. In a lot of places today, still, you're not really allowed to challenge the the, the propaganda, right? Yeah. And we are. And I like the idea that there are these films that sort of go, hang on a second, there's— there's a there's a bit of there's a darker story going on underneath right. this and part of being american is going how how much of this are we going to take before we start getting sure. irritable and noisy about it you know and i think that um sometimes i think there are particular moments when those films or that impulse gets more toothy you know what i mean i think yeah. chinatown coming at the end of the Vietnam War mm-hmm. and with Watergate. It's not coincidental mm-hmm. to me. I think it's like people were starting to get a very uncomfortable feeling about the disconnect mm-hmm. between, like, what's actually going on and, yeah. and what we're saying. And so you get this movie that says— Absolutely. There's there's a story here. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. You, that's like Woodward and Bernstein almost. Yeah. There's another story here, you guys. Yeah. Oh, ca- California, the land <laughs> yeah. of, the, land of yes. the second chance and the American dream. Exactly. And, Orange groves and right. actually it's about, you know, it's theft and incest. Right. Completely. You know what I yes. mean? Which, and which that's the American story as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And I think mm-hmm. the the And I give you a lot of credit in this because it's I think what you're taking on is not an easy thing to storytell. Because a lot of people a lot of people, here's the thing, like I've talked about racism in America and <laughs> this type of stuff, you know. People have lost context for many things. Like People don't really know what redlining really was, you know. Yeah. Or like, you know, Robert Moses, who you could call him city planner, I guess, if you're going to use one overall title for him. But he was protected from the normal types of checks and balances that people have to go through, you know, to do things. Because he got— He had none. He had zero. He subverted them completely. Through, like, tolls and all these other things. through genius. Yes. I mean, and when people (laughs) compare him to Trump, that's where I I draw the line. I say, like, but in in my— in in my literary version of a person like him yeah. that Alec Baldwin plays, there's there's a weave of other things that have nothing to do with Robert Moses sure. that bear more resemblance to the to sort of the 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 Me Too expression <laughs> sure. of of sure. grotesque power, right? Absolutely, and, right. and and fair enough. But at that, but beyond that, I think um, he was you know he wasn't a charlatan and a fool. He was a, no, he was a genius. All. Completely. He, he was much more um, Anakin Skywalker, Jedi Knight, tur- <laughs> turned that. Darth Vader. He really was. Yeah. He had enormous, enormous idealism and power mm-hmm. and uh, no, idealism and talent. And he went to the dark side mm-hmm. in a big way. Yeah. He literally had the power of the force. He knew how to shape the system mm-hmm. around him to confer the power to him in ways that were invisible yeah. to the world, which is really scary. When you think about it, it's like it's like, I mean, it, it, and and he was racist. Yes, I mean, there's like a story where he wanted some of the public swimming pools to be colder because because black people didn't like colder right. water. Yeah. It's like what are no, you gets, talking well, about? And, well, to your point, when you say like people don't realize what redlining actually was, I think um, 
this is um, like there was. You, you know, in other you know, words, you know, there was an intent to yeah, keep that, black that, separate. Exactly, that's what exactly, I mean. exactly. And it the, was like, and it was done by the government, and it was conscious. It wasn't an accident. This was purposeful. That's right. Know? Right. And those are the right words: intention, yes. purpose. Because I talked about this with um, Michael Eric Dyson. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. he's sure, a know sociology Michael. professor mm-hmm. at Georgetown, and he's written all these great books, right? And we, we were talking about that, 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 that they're sort of like, you see it with Holocaust deniers too, right? Sure. You, people do, it's this really insidious psychological trick, which is to say, the scale of the atrocity is so big that now with a little distance, we're going to say, it's so big that it's not believable. And it's a conspiracy theory that didn't actually happen mm. because your claim to the offense is so ridiculous that nobody could believe it, mm. right? And the, and I think it, in in America you see the same thing. We get um, we get a level of intolerance for the extrajudicial killing of African Americans by police, right? Mm-hmm. The the and people start saying, you know, that we get the, the Black Lives Matter becomes today's manifestation of of the civil right, uh, you know, of, of of the civil rights protest, right? Mm-hmm. Within it, you 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 feel this overt. It's not even it's not even subtle. This overt attempt to negate that by saying these complaints are ridiculous. You you exist within the uh, uh, the level playing field with everybody else, and what you're complaining about are the intrinsic problems of complex. Places like cities, you're blaming poverty on mm-hmm. on structural history that this that's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You you exist with you know the, enough time has gone by you know for for this to have lost its validity, sure. right? And and essentially within that, what you're getting is people saying what they're trying to do is discount it down to this kind of generalized the complexity of urban life mm-hmm. intrinsically includes. Poverty mm-hmm. and people have the chance to move in our dynamic society, and s- enough with the notion that some special consideration needs to be given, and that is a really insidious and and nasty form of manipulation mm-hmm. of history because what it does is denies that there were intentional structural mm-hmm. mechanisms for creating long term permanent discrimination, Absolutely. right? And so when you talk about people, I have had, I, when I showed the film, um, Chris Rock and and uh, Spike's wife, Tanya, and George Wolf were there one night when I showed an early cut of it. Mm-hmm. And Chris was like, the thing about the bridges, that, I mean, that that's <laughs> that's not real, right? About the overpass? Yeah, so so when they built Jones Beach. Completely real. They, they built yeah. new parkways mm-hmm. to go out to Jones Beach, this great new public yeah. asset built with the stated intention to liberate the urban masses, mm-hmm. to experience the outdoors and all of it. It's what the automobile represented right. even at that time. Yeah, the, yeah. the, the, the idea, mm-hmm. it, they didn't even call them highways. They called them parkways, mm. Pla- uh, these these beautiful roadways to take you out of the urban rat race. And, yeah. and as Alex's character says, lift the spirit and inspire yeah. the mind and all of it. And then they made the overpasses just 
low enough that public buses couldn't go to those beaches so that they could keep blacks and Latinos from going to the beaches. Because the argument was that most blacks didn't have cars, right. and they would have to go down there in a bus. Yeah, and people go, well, that's just oh, like— stop it. That, that's like, <laughs> and that's why we gave Gugu's character the line, do you think that this is all just like Negro propaganda conspiracy theory? Like, like this is happening. These things are happening. Like, they're, you know, they're, they're tearing down— stable middle-class neighborhoods in Fort Greene by tagging them slums so that they can build these, like, Corbusier-inspired, mm-hmm. like, ghettos, you know, mm-hmm. the, the projects. They tore down some of the most diverse and stable communities Completely. and built ghettos on, on purpose. They, and they did it on purpose. And and so you—to you, me, it's not—when we talk about it like this, what it ends up sounding like, like a polemic, right? But I think what— in film, it's more of a mystery. It's like this thing where you start to realize, like, that it's more about communicating that there are things going on that aren't that are not that aren't happening the way that we think. This is how the system works. Mm-hmm. There is not supposed to be, as Willem Dafoe says about Alec Baldwin, there's not supposed to be autocratic Caesars. And you know, with who are actually running things, you know, like Oz behind the curtain, mm-hmm. while we all cruise around, going, "We live in a democracy. What's 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 right. what's the problem?" How did this right? Happen? Yeah, like, and who and, elected you? Oh, right, nobody. Right. And then, and then, and then, and there's cost. Like, there, mm-hmm. you know, we when we're late to wake up to this, there's there's all kinds of dimensions of yeah. of pain. What's interesting about uh, just one more thing in the Moses example, the actual uh, Robert Moses, is that he was replicated around the country without any thought to, is this good or not? Yeah, <laughs> you know, no, it was. Of many of the thinking, and some of it, you know, I understand it's progress and that sort yeah. of thing, but yeah, some of it was. But the interesting you know, thing is, there, you're right, and they modeled on his mistakes. That yes, was, exactly. Because That's what I mean. he, and they didn't, they didn't realize that what was going on is he was prioritizing highways over mass transit mm-hmm. because he controlled the revenue exactly. from, from bridge and tunnel Bridges tolls. over tunnels, right. Bridge and tunnel tolls, yeah. but not mass transit. Yes. And he didn't. Right. He literally looked at mass transit as a competitor to his revenue yes. stream. And so the LIE corridor, the, yeah. the roadway punched through the living city to connect New York right. to the suburbs has no room for a mass transit line because he— <laughs> um, denied it. You and know? ego-wise, he preferred bridges over tunnels. He had many fights over that because bridges gave him more credit, actually, because yeah. you can see the bridges. Yeah, yeah. And they're pretty. And <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's like, that's insane. No, you know? yeah, no. And, 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 to... and the, the capriciousness mm-hmm. with, like, with which he destroyed um, when there was lots of opportunity to do things in more holistically yeah. kind ways. There's no other word for it. He... He was brutal and, and and lacked empathy yeah. for people, you know. Um, and I think, you know, we're we're bizarrely we're in this moment where mm-hmm. we're having this effing argument again. Like right. it's like, are we? It's like, what is the romance that we confer on on bullies? You know, mm-hmm. what is the romance that we? I like that, why yeah. do we? Why you know? You would think after our grandparents literally stopped their lives and went to war to fight authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. And th- and our national post-war value system is based on 
America stands up for. Yeah. America stands up against bullies. Well, ironically, we partnered with a bully to fight a bully. I mean, we had Stalin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, but and by the way, then <laughs> made enemy, then right. made enemies out of them. Correct. Yeah. But it, our national identity was was rooted in in being. You know, we come out of the Great Depression, in which we were rallying together basically around the idea of taking care of each other, mm-hmm. we then go outward and say to the world, hey, we're here. We're not going to allow Hitler and, you know, we're not going to allow fascists mm-hmm. to, to, to trample on, on the, the progressive democratic free and, world. Right? And what the promise of democracy was at that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and yet in, you know, what's incredible, I think, for people is, 2012, we've got this like kind of blissful idea that we're uh, somehow Obama's ushering us into a authentic uh, <laughs> post-racial utopia or something. And the, <laughs> no, and the snapback has been intense. The snapback, the snapback, um, with not and actually not even just talking about the competency of the politics, one or the other, mm-hmm. the psychological snapback in which we realize that our capacity as a society, to fall in love with very brutal assertions of power mm-hmm. over the idea of people of of that idea of like our our identity is 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 rooted in caring for the least of us, yeah. right? It's it's a it's it's rough. It's yeah. rough to come to grips with like how much sway that idea still yeah. holds. You know, you you. You, it sort of you, it, it gives you this like mild nausea that there's like so mm-hmm. many people willing to romance yeah. to, to fall in love with a bully. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to hear all of your. That's one thing that's interesting about this movie is there are so many layers. You know, the last thing I wanted to ask you about um, is the music. You know, because jazz plays, I think, several roles in this movie. You know, but one of the more fascinating roles is in the musicality kind of relationship between that and Tourette's you know did you think of that at first that that would have a connection or did it were you because of the time period jazz is a natural fit did you go oh this is actually a connection here yeah um mm-hmm. it w- it was natural because once I wrote this once I mm-hmm. built into the story that there was this jazz club at the center mm-hmm. of the mystery somehow and a woman who's connected to this jazz club right. somehow and so on and so forth. I knew, I knew we were going to go there, and I knew when we went there that I wanted to have a moment where, where the condition that Lionel suppresses suppresses that this time we've spent with him, mm-hmm. watching him try to keep a lid on it, keep a lid on it, keep a lid on it, and all the painful and funny ways that it is always popping out on him. I liked the idea that he arrives in this one moment where, where by surprise, but by, by not you know. He he he! And suddenly encounters something where his condition can re- can interact with something beautiful mm-hmm. like jazz, and he realizes like he has one moment where he's he's free, he's liberated, mm-hmm. where where the where the condition and something beautiful are like merging in a way that's very yeah. freeing to him and and to us, where we're like happy to see him, sort of. Um, yeah. Finding a synergy 
I love that scene when he's he's there while they're playing. I'm like, I thought, is he going to go up and perform? Yeah, yeah. You know, like, is he, is he, like, what's going to happen here? Is the, is the white guy going to get up and scat? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> with the band. Uh, yeah. But um, I don't know. Maybe he goes yeah, up and plays uh, the drums. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. But It um, turns into Art Blakey all of a sudden. Yeah, like, but I think, um, so I knew there was that. And I, I, I went to Wynton Marsalis mm-hmm. and, and asked him if he would help me think about what pieces from that era would fit the energy I wanted for mm-hmm. the moments. Like, you know, right. the first number is something joyful and fun and mm-hmm. it's triggering Lionel's Tourette's, but also he's having drinks with this girl and there's something happening. And, right. and for once, someone's not saying, what is your problem? She's smiling with him. She's laughing at mm-hmm. him. It's blending into an evening of fun and he's suddenly going, hey, wait a minute, this is... I'm having a good time, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and a ballad, a, a, you know, a, a sudden moment of chemistry and mm-hmm. incipient romance. And then I wanted something that was a little chaotic, you know, and and, mm-hmm. and went and came up with, like, um, the Mingus track, Jump Monk, yeah. uh, which was from that era and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I knew we wanted to be rooted in some real jazz, and I felt that probably the landscape of the music wanted to have a, you know, some of the, um, the thing that's great about jazz is it can be, it has a romantic, it, it, there's something inherently yearning and romantic mm-hmm. in its horns and in its basses and, and its that, pianos. That era is especially central. It's very central, yeah. 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 I think, too, though, it has a tension in it. There's a dissonance in jazz, too. There's, mm-hmm. there's a way to use jazz instruments to create a, a very jangly mm. kind of a dissonance. And um, I thought... That would be good. And I had this tremendous composer, Daniel Pemberton, who I, when I said to him, like, look, to me, it's um, Lionel's mind is like Radiohead in, 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 in my mind. Sure. And I, I buried some Easter eggs in there of like when he talks about his condition, he says, like, you know, it has to have everything in its right place, mm-hmm. um, which is one of their songs, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it, and it ha- you know, and, and um, mm-hmm. there's, um, there's, uh, uh, and Daniel did this beautiful job of blending together kind of what I'd call a modernist dissonance with this beautiful jazz score. But the but the other thing, I do love Radiohead, and I do think they're, I think that Tom as a writer is really, he's really um, got something, you talk about, he's got something of the modern mm-hmm. condition in his writing. Like, sure. and And I asked him if he would write a ballad for the film that was almost like Lionel's ballad. Mm-hmm. And I liked the idea in a way of Tom, Tom's voice being Lionel's like inner musical voice. And I said, you know, and I was like, I was saying to some people, like, it's a little of this, a little of that. And people were like, Tom York and Wynton Marsalis, like, how is that gonna, mm-hmm. how's that gonna mash up? But Tom is so adept. I said, it needs to feel like it's come from the past. It, mm-hmm. It's like you're singing like Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit or something. It's right. got it's got political dimension. Absolutely. Darkness, like mm-hmm. the oppression of living in dark times. And mm-hmm. but then, you know, and a lot of people don't even realize when when they dance, when my character and, and Gugu and Bathory Ra's character have that dance moment, mm-hmm. that's Winton's that's Winton's arrangement of Tom's song that you've heard earlier in the movie, right. um, done as if it's like a Miles Davis. Yeah. Ballad from the period. So I, I think you can take things and you can take things and and 
and mash them up and create something that's well, classical and modern at the I same was time. Say, you know? It's how you evoke the era, but you still make it con- contemporary. Yeah, at the same time, you know. You remember? I mean, think about like think about the score of Chariots of Fire, right? Yeah, uh, I, which I know. So say, sometimes people go, "Oh, yeah, it's cliche." But it wasn't. It was. Nope. It was incredible. It did something to you. Absolutely. The minute you run, wait. I'm in the 1920s. I'm on a beach. There are these young men running toward me, and and there's a synthesizer yes. and an electronic drum yes. going, like Giorgio Moroder, you know. And then comes the classical piano in it, going ba 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 ba, and it it makes your skin stand. It make it makes your hair and your arm stand up when that movie begins. Sure, you go, what is going on? Why is this so cool? This is very affecting. The, you know? o- the other that is in that example is the Sting. The Sting is using music that is twenty years before the era. Right. We're watching. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's ragtime. That's yep. not the thirties. You know. <laughs> no. And yet, you don't think that there's a disconnect there. No. It completely evokes yeah. the spirit of that film, even though it's not. Yeah, not even close to the music no, of that you, time. You can or contemporary. It was no, neither. I know it wasn't either. It, it was, was like such a an meta, anomaly. Yeah, exactly. It's just weird. An idea Marvin Hamlish's mind that yeah. you know what I got to have Scott Joplin. Yeah, in here. I know. Yeah. It's, and why? <laughs> it's 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 so wild. Um, I think and that it worked. Yeah. It worked, and I think sometimes it can just work. And I think the funny thing is, is you do these things like you kind of say things like director directors get. When when people write something and direct it, yeah, it's their thing. But the thing is that what I think people d- underappreciate, people who make films don't. But I think what you have to communicate about this is you you end up saying things like, "I want to do this," mm-hmm. you, but then a lot of people like run for the door. They're like, "This is going to be bloody. <laughs> yes, this is you want to do. True. You want to do a movie that big in New York with car chases through Manhattan in the fifties. Yeah. You want to shut down fifteen. But this is going to be painful. Like, but other people say, I know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And you get photographers and production designers and costume designers and musicians like this mm-hmm. and a cast like this, and people start like levering, stacking up their talent." against the problem you've essentially put on the board you know you right. and all of a sudden these things start happening that are kind of amazing you know mm-hmm. what i mean like and i i look at it and i'm like there's 680 something effect shots in the film by the way your penn station mm-hmm. scene was gorgeous yeah we wanted to we recreated you, penn, penn you, station which yeah, is you gone. kind of evoked the famous picture a little bit yeah, yeah no yeah. because it's, it's like gorgeous. and some people were like why can't why can't he um mm. Why can't he find the final clue in a bus station? <laughs> like, and I was like, well, because no, because we lost because this is a ghost. We're that's hilarious. We're seeing. Right? We got to see a ghost. You know, to me, it's like if you want to understand what gets lost when we're not paying attention. Yeah, you have to see the thing and on a visceral level, like have that academic conversation about. Oh yeah, we they tore Penn Station down, but that's not visceral. Visceral no. is going. Oh my God! We used to have that exactly, and that's fucking gone now because yeah. some people made a deal yeah. to put up a pretty crappy stadium. Goes back to your boy, you know what I mean? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, and it's sort of like you, you. That that's the difference in a book and yeah. a movie, right? I think sure. you can you can bring something to life with music, and 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 then you can sometimes do less and say more. Yeah, and it, yeah. and and in this and and you do something that hits the unconscious, not yeah. the not the the conscious head. And I think 
And I think the cast, for me, the cast in this was kind of the final piece because I, I had to do it. I had to do it on a budget. I had to do it at a pace. And and I, like I, other than Gugu and Bathurah, who's this really brilliant mm-hmm. new actress out of England, yeah, she's who amazing. A lot of people don't know. And I liked I liked the idea of her because she's the woman of mystery. I liked the idea of the audience like leaning in along with Lionel going. I don't. I don't know her. What is what is her deal? I don't yeah. know what she sounds like. You know, um, but other than that, I literally like everybody in it is New York theater actors yeah. who I, I knew could bring that kind of a game to it. Like, and by that, I, and I'm not not just Willem or Cherry Jones, Bobby Cannavale, but like Alec. You know, like Alec Baldwin. When I came to New York, Alec was doing Streetcar on Broadway. Hmm. And I was like, who's going to do, like, Streetcar? And you went, and you were like, this thing that was owned by Marlon Brando. And I remember going, oh, my God, yeah, that guy's good. Absolutely. You know, and Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and, like, these things where you're like— Best cameo ever. Best cameo ever. I mean, one of the <laughs> most is. cited ones right. ever, you know. Ever. Coffee is for closers only. Like, right. nobody forgot it. And I Huge. think that— um, Hunt for Red October, to me, yeah. is still classic because he had such a— I thought he was going to go down that road a little bit more, but, you know, he's had a great career. What, what no, he's say? a great dramatic actor. But he actor. was an amazing leading man at that time, yeah. you know, who could have had that type of career if that's what he wanted, you know. I think the, the getaway, I think he may have followed up with that or something. He, um, yeah. But Alec, Alec, the thing is, Alec has a theater actor's background. Completely. And he has he has a classical actor. I don't mean it to sound pretentious, but like a shape, like a mm-hmm. a Paul Schofield or any Ian McKellen. He has a command of language, and you see this even in his comedy. Yeah, he has an eloquence and a command of language. Yeah. that he has this dark soliloquy at the end in the, of the movie in the mm-hmm. pool, and I was like, he he came at that like a like a stage play he Very just like like he i knew he could synthesize yeah. that and and own it and um and uh i think when you when you get people like that together it's part of that hypnosis cuz i think when i think when we see movies like LA confidential or whatever i don't actually i don't remember i don't remember most of what happens in that movie mm-hmm. honestly i don't what i remember is that when it started there's about, about two minutes in, like, someone flicks a switch in your head and you just go, the f- the picture looks right, mm-hmm. it looks real, the music is great, mm-hmm. the people are great, and it just feels right. You right. know what I mean? Like, You're like, done, I'm in. I'm in. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you kind of go, this is doing that grown-up thing mm-hmm. that that movies can do where you kind of just feel bought in. Yeah. And – um. And and if you get people there, you can you can go a lot of places. You know, mm-hmm. you can go, you can wander around, and absolutely, people aren't going to necessarily be there because of what's happening. Even they're going to be there just because of yeah, all the other stuff you've been talking about, music and characters. And well, congratulations, whatever. man, and thank you so much for stopping by. You know, I mean, I feel like I could talk to you <laughs> so many of these different subjects. You know, it's just. So interesting. But Motherless Brooklyn, what an achievement. I mean, it's so hard to me. First of all, doing a film noir, you know, and choosing a subject like this, 
already are tough to do. But this character to me is is so interesting to watch in so many different. I I really, you related to it. I, I think. really do. <laughs> he as a character is the thing that I'm on that train. Yeah, you know, I'm interested. I really and I, not giving away in the movie, but I could watch a whole movie of him trying to have a relationship. Yeah, because that's a problem. You know, just there's a scene where he's trying to light a cigarette. You know, which is one of them to me, like. All this plot, everything else. Yeah. That's a fascinating scene to me. Like, I love stuff like that. You yeah. Know? Like, I could see, like, all of that kind of stuff. You yeah. Know? So, so that's what I want to give you credit oh, for, you. of having these observations inside of this type of movie, you know, to—, to and be authentic with those types of observations, you know, and that. Yeah, type of yeah. Thing. I mean, I, I think I, it's, it's just awesome. Man. No, it's it's, and mm. I love him too. Like, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't always feel that, I, but I, yeah. I, I feel for him, and I, um, that goes back to the source, you know. That that's the credit is Jonathan Lethem's. Yeah, that's Jonathan Lethem's yep. what beautiful yeah. creation. He created exactly. this guy that is in all his uniqueness is just like great to ride along yeah. with. You know what I mean? And I, 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 in a way, I just I added a dimension that's mine on it. But I, in a lot of ways, you, you're, I was trying to do justice to that core. You did. That core character he created. Motherless Brooklyn, you guys. Edward Norton doing his Orson Welles thing. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing all the hats. Really go see it. You, there's so many things to enjoy. Cast, music, so many things. Edward, thank you so much for Pleasure, stopping man. by, man. All right. Totally appreciate it. Peace. <laughs>